Well, we are in 1 Kings chapter 19. So then you always have a debate. Do you do that before the message or after? Because sometimes you think, I do that before the message. They won't think about the message. They'll all be, who knows what they'll be thinking about. So we'll have to pray in a minute and just ask God to help us to tune in now to the Word of God. But Brother Lee was correct a while ago. You can kind of figure out when you go down through this. Just like in the series about those questions, you could kind of look for the verse. Well, right here in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 19, you have a tree mentioned. So it won't take you much to figure this out. Let's look at it again, verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. So there you have it. And in verse 5, and he lay and slept under a juniper tree. So this morning, the title of the message is the juniper, the sheltering tree. And we'll talk about that. Let's pray first. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have of gathering. Lord, we realize that uh, it is such a precious and wise thing that you have done to give us the gathered church. Because some things just don't come across the same way. No matter how much we try to find stopgap measures, which in and of themselves are good when we have to depend upon them, we realize, Lord, that they don't really take the place of the real thing. And we know not to mess with what you've established as the real thing because we know it has upon it uh, your divine stamp and seal of approval. We know it has about it your wisdom. We know that Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And so we thank you for each one who could be here today. I pray, Lord, that as these services happen over the next few weeks, that more and more people will have confidence to come back to church, that these services will prove to be well taken care of, safe for all. And, uh, Father, other churches that are opening and carrying on, just give great wisdom, Lord, so that uh, as we move through this and try to seek uh, some type of understanding of what it is that you might be doing in our lives and what it is that you might be doing in our nations, that we can be together to share the word of God and the singing and giving and praying and all the things that we're used to being able to do together, even, Lord, to get back to the time when we can feel comfortable with shaking hands and the types of things that we're accustomed to. But all in due time, for today, what we want to do is to ask that you will bless and sanctify these moments because we realize that we can preach messages, we can go through the motions, we can attend services and sing songs, but if our heart is not in it and you're not in it in terms of blessing, it won't amount to much. And so we come into your presence, dear God, to pray that you will forgive us of our sins, cleanse us, uh, and help us to be in right relationship with you so that there is no blockage, hindrance to the communication of the Spirit of God through your word today. Give me liberty and freedom and uh, judgment in sharing the word of God today, I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, just a, another quick reminder of, of what this series is and how it's unfolding. Trees with a message. And so maybe you're surprised to see, wow, a series on trees. But just remember that the Bible is invested with a message almost on every hand. And so I made a point last week of pointing out that, you know, sometimes the whole turn of thought hung between a singular and a plural. Sometimes the turn of thought hung on just the tense of a verb. So it really shouldn't surprise us that when we look at the geography of the Holy Land and the land of the Bible, when we look at the flora and the fauna, that is the trees, the animals, all those types of things, all you have to do to go is to go to the book of Proverbs and see that Solomon himself 
lassoed on to any number of those things and wrote Proverbs about them. And, and many times the Lord sees fit to give us a message there. And it's kind of intriguing, really. To me, uh, one of the reasons that something like this would interest me is because it just magnifies God's greatness. It just shows how he's able to speak to us in so many different ways and that his word is so multifaceted. And in fact, this really is a miraculous book. And so we rejoice in that, and I hope that it helps to magnify the word of the Lord. And uh, that's what I chose to uh, call my website anyway, Magnify Thy Word. Well, so what we're talking about trees with a message, we've divided into two categories real quick. So we have the towering trees of Scripture, which are three. There are only three. They're unparalleled. No other tree like it. You don't encounter them anywhere else. You don't walk out across the street and find the tree of life. You don't walk out across the street and find the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm kind of glad I didn't have to face that test, aren't you? I don't think I'd have done any better. And we don't walk across the street, at least literally, and find the tree of Calvary. But we can still find it. Aren't you glad? But at any rate, those are the three unparalleled towering trees. So they, they seem to loom higher than any of the others. There's a special significance vested with those trees. But then you come across what will just the normal trees that you encounter in Bible reading. And uh, so we want to talk about the, the message then of those trees, trees with a message. Um, telling trees is what I've decided to call those because they each tell a story or have a message in association with them. So the juniper tree is what, and I wanted to describe that as I told you in the title of the message. We're going to talk about shelter today. We're going to consider the juniper tree as the sheltering tree. And I think as we think about the subject of shelter, we'll all be realizing here very shortly how important the subject of shelter really is to us. So we're going to follow a similar development. As far as I know, we'll probably do this with most of these messages. But a little brief summary of what we know, what we know in general or what we know from the Bible. Here's a really interesting thing about the juniper tree. Only four references in the Bible by name to the juniper tree. So it makes this a little easier because you don't have 48 references like we did last week with the cedar tree. Or a bunch of references, and I forgot what number I gave uh, when we talked before about the sycamore tree. I think that message was actually online rather than uh, us being here together. But you only have four references. And so it's easy to look at all of those. It's easy to sort of see how it fits in. And I, I have to say, you know, of those four references, we've just seen two already in this story. And so what really has a way of happening in this is that the two references, they become inseparable with the story of Elijah. And the die sort of is cast as to what this tree is going to be and what it's going to mean from the story of Elijah because the other two references that we have in the Bible are basically just incidental. In other words, they furnish a side fact about the juniper tree, but not so much where it's used in play, not so much where it becomes a, a factor in the life or story of the people of God from which we can derive a clear lesson. Although even the incidental things, I think, certainly point to the message at hand. I'll show you those in just a moment. So four references, and they are always called the juniper tree in the Bible. 
However, if you do any study on this, you're going to find out that the Hebrew word translated juniper is broom. So I'm sure you've heard this before, the broom tree. And that's what the Hebrew word means. So it won't surprise you then sometimes if you hear another translation or read a different translation. Many times you'll find the broom tree used as the translation. And it's simply because that's literally what the Hebrew word means. And the word that we're used to, though, and we're going to stick with is juniper. No sense in trying to change what we're all familiar with. Um, the juniper tree is relatively common in Israel, but it seems like it has its special association with the desert or the wilderness, which is where we find it in the story of Elijah. And even in the other incidental references, it's not too difficult to tell right away that why we might refer to this as the tree of shelter or the sheltering tree. Because you see there, that is under the juniper tree and as a product of the juniper tree, the traveler would find shelter by night. Now just envision this perhaps for a moment. We don't do it this way so much anymore because we're not out exposed to the elements. If we drive somewhere, we end our day at the Holiday Inn or some other place where we've decided to stay overnight. But if you're out and you need to find some type of shelter for the night, and these Bedouins, these des desert travelers, these people in the wilderness would seek out the shelter by night of the juniper tree. And the reason, one of the great reasons for doing this is because you would find protection then from the winds at night. And so the juniper tree was common that way. Or you would find shelter by day from what we might think of as the withering sun. So it wouldn't be uncommon. And if you think about this, you do this even now, right? I mean, if you're out and you're ready to take a break. You might be mowing the grass or something like that, you know, and that heat keeps beating down and it keeps beating down. Uh, you're just as glad to take your break under a shade tree, right? And we talk about that even now. We talk about a shade tree. And uh, so you find shelter under this, and that, that was why by, by day or by night, these travelers would find shelter under the juniper tree. Those two other incidental references will fit this. Um, if you keep fingers here, because we'll be coming back, but turn to Psalm 120. And uh, so here's something that fits right into this idea of the uh, shelter or the help that the tree provided to people in that kind of a context. Psalm 120 verse 4 has a reference to the coals. That is, when you would burn the wood. So you can envision now somebody... Uh, gathering up some firewood now. They've come to a stand, Psalm 120, verse 4. They, they'd maybe come to a stand of juniper trees, two or three or whatever, and decide that this was a great place to set up for the night. There'd be some shelter and protection there. You might also then find some of the dead wood around that you could use in a fire. And the juniper, as it burned, was noteworthy for it's the heat uh, of the coals that it would produce. And so the psalmist picks this up, uses it, uses it as a, a figure of speech for the damage that's so often done by the words of the slanderer. They're like hot coals. And so verse 4 says, we'll read verse 3, What shall be given unto thee, or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? So this is, this is the liar, this is the slanderer. Sharp arrows of the mighty with, jolt, with coals of juniper. So that's sort of an incidental reference, as you can see. Let's come back and look in the book of Job. We'll find the other of the four references in the book of Job. And we want to go to chapter 30. 
And here's another incidental use, though, that fits the idea of shelter. Job chapter 30. Now, I have to say, between these two references, Psalm 120, verse 4, and Job chapter 30, verse 4, I'd rather go with the coal from the juniper than this next one. Because Job chapter 30, verse 4, it says, well, again, we'll read the verse before to get a flavor of this. For want and famine, they were solitary, fleeing into the wilderness. See the wilderness context? In former time, desolate and waste, who cut up mallows by the bushes and juniper roots for their meat or food. Ew. (laughs) In other words, you're kind of in a situation where you're out of everything else. You don't have anything that you call decent food, so to speak. So you got to go there and get... Now, this mallow, folks, this is not a mallow cup. If this were a mallow cup, we'd be in business. I don't want to get you drooling right now, but I love mallow cups. I keep telling my wife, we have got to get over there to Altoona one time when that place is open and get a box of those things. I don't know if a box of them would be good. I might sit down and eat too many, but I love mallow cups. But this is the stalwart plant. This is like a marsh plant. This is nothing that you kind of walk across the street for. Same thing with the juniper root. I mean, you're going to boil that or whatever you're going to do, and, well, it'll get you by maybe, but it's not anything. It's not something really good. But again, it does fit this idea that if you're in the wilderness and you lack any supply, whatever, you take what you can get, and they could use the root of the juniper. So you see why I call those incidental. Everything really, that fits the scheme, but everything really comes back to, as I say, the two other references are inseparably connected with the life of Elijah. So Coming back then to our theme, what can we learn? And from those uses that we've already looked at and from the association with Elijah, it's an easy enough lesson to, or it's an easy to see how we would have a lesson in shelter. Now, let's talk about shelter in general. Then we're going to come, boom, right to the story of Elijah and see if what we talked about fits. All right, so I want to pose two practical questions to you. When you think about shelter... What kind of shelter do we need? Now, you don't have to answer, but I see your wheels are turning. But I'm going to give you just a thought. So, as human beings, in the flesh, that is, we need two kinds of shelter, really, don't we? We need at least two kinds. We need physical shelter. Think about the traveler in the wilderness seeking out the shade and protection. That's physical shelter or seeking the place at night out of the wind to uh, pass the night. That's shelter of a physical type because we live in these mortal bodies, and so we require shelter. And uh, we're very grateful that when the end of the day comes, and especially if there's any storms or bad weather about, we're very glad that when we go home, we have what? Shelter. We require all of these things physically. But beyond our physical requirements, when you take a play off of the very things that require us to want physical shelter, we also need spiritual shelter. And the Bible talks about both of these things. Because even if you go, for example, and think about spiritual shelter, isn't Jesus the one who said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. So we're feeling the need of rest. 
We're feeling the need of shelter. But what type of shelter is he really getting to? And I will give you rest. Well, Jesus is not saying, I'll give you a reservation at the Holiday Inn. Jesus is saying, you find rest unto your souls, right? You keep reading, he says, for I am meek and lowly in spirit. You find rest to your souls, spiritual shelter. Or if you go to a place like Psalm 23, verse 2 and verse 3, you'll find both ideas put together. And this is significant because Psalm 23 is the good shepherd, the good shepherd who knows how to care for every need that the sheep have. What needs do sheep have? Especially when we think of the sheep as an image of the believer. So in verse 2, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures and leadeth me beside the still waters. That's providing for the physical needs because sheep need the tender grass. Sheep want the waters of quietness. They don't want loud, running, rushing waters that agitate their spirit. They're relaxed, they're comfortable when they come to a quiet brook where they can uh, take on the water that they need to sustain life. But that's an image of spiritual truth as well, right? We need the, the green grass. We don't want husks. When you get a preacher, find somebody that's going to give you the, the, the meat of God's word. Find somebody that's going to give you the green grass of God's word. You don't want a bunch of spiritual husks. And if you think about the prodigal son... When he got down there, out of fellowship with his father, he would fain have filled his belly with what? The husks. But it was a poor substitute. And it's a poor substitute to listen to a message that really doesn't give you anything from God's word. So those all portray spiritual things. So the next verse makes the point. He restoreth my soul. Wow, you mean there are times when I need spiritual restoration. There are times that I need spiritual shelter and rest. Absolutely. Absolutely. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So we need, that's the answer to that question. We need both. We need physical and spiritual. Question two, just have two. Question two, where do we find the kind of shelter we're talking about? And the answer that I want you to come up with, because this is what we're going to talk about, and this is what's true ultimately, is we find it all ultimately from the hand of God. You say, I go to Walmart. Well, good for you. But who gave you the money to go to Walmart? Who gave you the strength to go to Walmart? Isn't it true that every good gift and every perfect gift is ultimately from above? And comes from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So I recognize even in the things that I think I don't need God for, I really do need God for. Because God is the one who gives me those things. It's a little more obvious when you go out to your garden that God gave you that. Which is one reason that I, I worry some about our culture now. Because we have so many people in these big cities, I don't think they understand where it all comes from or how you got it, or what it takes to have it. If you grow up around some rural atmospheres, or at least you've had that as a part of the experience of your life, you understand that, wow, you know, the farmer goes out, he sows the seed, but you can't make that seed germinate. And it's, it amazes me that unbelievers do this all the time. They go out and, and take advantage of what's really a miracle and what's uh, something that only God can do, and they don't give God the glory for it. 
which is why the proverb says that the plowing of the wicked is sin, because not that plowing is sin, not that hard work is sin, not that the crops are sin, but you go out there and you take advantage of God's ground, and you take advantage of God's sunlight, you take advantage of God's weather and God's rain and everything else, and you, then you come home and don't give God any praise. These things come from the hand of God. Now, let's go to the story of Elijah and see if this proves out. These observations we've made, let's see how they fit in the story of, of, of Elijah. So first of all, the physical. Well, it's under the juniper tree that God provides sleep, food, and water. So in our verses, notice, but he went for himself a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a jun the juniper tree, Behold an angel. So this is supernatural provision, right? When he put his head down, he didn't have the water and the cake. An angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. Now, I want you to catch verse 8, because I want to make a comment, and I hope it brings a smile. When I say this comes from the hand of God, this is a supernatural meal, buddy. I mean, I have never had a meal like this, because it says in the next verse, And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the Mount of God. Wow. You know, I, I go out here on one of these days when it's uh, warm to have to cut the grass. And I, I drink a big glass of water before I go outside and I think, oh, I'll last an hour. And I get out there about 30 minutes and I'm thirsty. To the thought of being able to go 40 days and 40 nights on a cruise of water and a must have been some powerful angel food that day. That's all I know. But it's clearly from God. He didn't have those things. Kind of wonder what he was thinking sometimes. But I want you to notice something about the order of this because the physical need God undertakes to provide for first before God gets into dealing with the spiritual need. That's kind of an interesting thing because the physical and the spiritual are so often so closely connected and sometimes you almost get into a, an endless loop and you try to figure out which came first, the chicken or the egg. And... Think about this story for a moment. <clears throat> it's, we get weary, but on the heels of physical weariness so often follows what? Discouragement. Seems like we're most vulnerable to spiritual discouragement, even depression, when we're just not good, not good physically, haven't had our rest, that type of thing. So there's actually a marker on the top of Mount Washington. And what it is, is designed to commemorate the spot where a woman who was trying to climb to the top ultimately lay down and died. The thing about it is, she was so close to the top that she could have almost hit it with a stone. A hundred steps more and she would have reached the summit where there was the shelter that she sought, but she did not know this because she had become disheartened by the storm she became beaten down in body and distressed in her spirit, and she just got to the place that she was at the end of her courage. 
I may have told you the story before about the woman who was uh, attempting to swim across the English Channel. And the first attempt was unsuccessful. She got so discouraged, so weary after so long in the water. And, you know, the, the Britain, Britain is famous for the fog. She was that close and she couldn't see it. And she finally had to tell them to get her out of the water. Now, fortunately, she went back on another occasion and she, she accomplished it. But it just shows how so often when we get beat down physically, it just leaves a vulnerability, a door open for Satan to come in there and kind of exploit us when we're vulnerable that way. And so God doesn't start dealing with him about the spiritual issues. There are spiritual issues going on here. Yes, the preacher has them sometimes, because we all have them sometimes. There are spiritual issues going on here, but God doesn't attempt to deal with that in the beginning. He realizes that what he's got a case of on his hands is an overwrought prophet. He's overextended himself in many ways. The, the most obvious is physical. So let me tell you, where did he come from before he ended up in Beersheba? Mount what? Yeah, you know what? That's 100 miles. Not on any motorcycle either. Although I'm tempted sometimes when I think about Elijah to think about a, a guy on a motorcycle because he just strikes me as, you know, I mean, this, this was a tough dude, this Elijah. But one not any motorcycle, one not any tour bus, one not any motor car. He walked. He walked all that way. And then it says he left his servant in Beersheba and went another day's journey into the wilderness. Can you imagine the physical exhaustion? It's no wonder he lay down and fell asleep under that juniper tree. But God knows he's got an overwrought prophet on his hands with some spiritual issues. But before God is going to make a lot of headway with him on the spiritual issues, he wants to get him a little bit up to speed physically so he's in a position to respond to it. And there's a lesson in that. And then we note the source of this physical shelter. God sends his angel. See, it's, it's ultimately God. God himself who acknowledges that he's made us physical beings as well as spiritual beings. And God who has ultimately committed himself to meeting our physical needs for shelter. God doesn't promise to give us everything we want. He's very good to do that many times. Gives us things that we may want. But let's look at a couple of verses. And again, keep fingers here, but let's go to Psalm 127, verse 2. Talking about how God understands. See, I think some, some folks get so spiritual that they're, they're a little too impractical, a little too spiritual for their own good and anybody else's good. And they don't understand that this delicate relationship exists between the physical and the spiritual, and they just bang on people and bang on people. And here's what God has to say about sleep. Verse 2 of Psalm 127 says, It's vain for you to rise up early and sit up late to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. You know, if you beat yourself up all night long, you're not going to be any good to anybody the next day, including yourself, and you might be worse. So it's hard for us sometimes. Do you ever struggle with that? I mean, I'm not just preaching down to you. I think we all do. I think sometimes anxieties and problems come and we... We wrestle with them, and we want to take the time that God really says, hey, you need this restoration physically. I've built you this way. And we sit up late and do this and do that, and, well, we pay for it the next day, don't we? And so God says he giveth his beloved sleep, and, and, and sometimes we just it's vain for us to sit there and fret is what he's saying. 
Come over to the New Testament. Again, keeping your marker back there in 1 Kings 19. But Jesus, ever practical. I mean, you can't get more practical than how Jesus handles these subjects. In verse 11, in the model prayer that he gave to his disciples, when the petitions start in the second half of the prayer that deal with us, all the rest deal with God. Three, what's the matter? Matthew 6. Sorry. Can't read my mind by now? (laughs) I remember when we went to Illinois, the pastor's secretary there, she could half the time tell exactly where the pastor was going. But anyway, Matthew chapter 6, I'm sorry. Um, When he gets done with the petitions that have thy, like hallowed be thy name, all that, and the petitions then that deal with us, the first one is, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Who's the one who says, pray for, for it from me? God does and acknowledges that every day we need bread. And if we go down a little bit more in the chapter, go to verse 25. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink. For your body, what ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat or food and the body more than raiment. And then go to 31. And this he says, take no thought again, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father, what? Knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Or in the next chapter, 7, verse 7. What does he teach us to do about these things? Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or, let's talk illustrations. What man is there of you? Whom, if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, good give things to them that ask him? Folks, what I'm saying to you, God himself acknowledges that we have those needs and commits himself to meeting them. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The spiritual then, that's the physical. Let's talk about the spiritual because... God has some spiritual work to do on this man, but he wants him in the proper shape to receive it. And so the scene changes, and he's now at Mount Horeb, and instead of being under a juniper tree, he's in a cave. But you know what? It's still shelter. Now, whether you're under the juniper tree out in the open in the wilderness or whether you're in the mountain region in a cave, He's still in a place that he's gone to seek shelter, and the the ideas and the themes are still the same. But the place changes, but the general idea does not. It's still shelter, and now God turns his attention to the spiritual issues. And the first thing that God does is to probe the problem. Notice verse 9 and verse 13. He asks him a question two times, the same question. Verse 9, at the end of the verse, what Doest thou hear, Elijah? What are you doing here? We might say colloquially, what in the world are you doing? 
He feels a little better now, though. He's had that miraculous food. He's ready to listen. Verse 13 asks the question again at the end of the verse. What doest thou here, Elijah? Did you think about what's going on? God's probing the problem because, folks, here's a truth. You know what? You can't fix what you can't see. Or, to put it differently, you can't fix what you refuse to see. And so until we get to the place that we see the problem and are willing to acknowledge the problem, we can't let God fix it. Which is exactly why, in, even in the realm of salvation, Jesus says, you know what? I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that be sick. When you see that you're sick with sin, when you see that you need a Savior, when you see that you're lost and undone apart from the grace of God and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, when you really get a hold of that in your heart, that's when you start having an interest in Jesus Christ because the only relief from the lostness that comes to us as a result of sin is through the salvation that Christ offers on the cross of Calvary. When you see that, then you're ready. Up until that, you're just waffling around. And so God probes the problem. You have to see it to fix it. And the root here of the problem is, well, the outward thing that, that, that psychologists would diagnose, they would say he's discouraged, he's depressed. He said, it is enough, and he sits down and requests for himself that he might die. He says, I'm not better than my father's. Well, I don't like to talk too much of this because I, I'm not anywhere near Elijah, so I figure I'm doing far worse. But we all, if we're going to be honest, recognize what this is, right? This is a pity party. He's gotten into that rut of self-despair and discouragement. And what does he say? I only I am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he's, oh, he's got all these reasons why he thinks that God should just, I, I'm ready to be done. I'm ready to hang up my shingle. I'm tired of this preaching. I'm tired of all this guff that I get. Where did it get me? And he's ready to quit. But, you know, God deals in tenderness. And so the first thing he says is, what are you doing here? Why aren't you back up there where I was using you? What in the world did you do leaving your station and coming down here? Back up there is where you're supposed to be. But he's got to deal with the problem. He's got to get Elijah to see this before he can really fix it. And let's go a step further. I don't claim to be a psychiatrist. But you do any reading on this or even just look in the mirror. And you'll figure something out. Now, again, you might not like what I'm going to say, but that the whole problem is you have to see it before you can fix it. But when we find ourselves this way, discouraged and holding a pity party, what really is going on is we're angry. And the person that we're really angry with is God. Because we don't like how God has managed our lives. We don't like the decisions he's made. We don't like the problems that we have. And we see, why didn't you just do this, God? We have all kinds of things, and some people get intensely bitter. Why did you take this person out of my life? Why did I lose this job? Why did you let these things happen to me? As if somehow God was sitting up there in heaven trying to spend all of his time figuring out how he can make us the most miserable. And then we become discouraged and angry. It's Anger is the root of the problem here. 
And you can see it bubbling just under the surface when he says to God, I am not better than my father's. Just take my life. This is, I'm ready to be done with this sorry preaching job you've given to me. But, you know, I'm glad that God doesn't pop him down right then and there. I'm glad God doesn't pop me down when I get ornery like that. I'm glad he's tender and he, he just wants him to see what's going on. You're upset because you don't like how I've handled these things. Well, what was it that he might have been upset about that God did? Well, Elijah liked the fire. In fact, I don't know anybody else in the Bible that you can point to that called down fire. Elijah called down fire twice. Well, three times, I guess, if you count the 250s. But he called down fire on that story in chapter, the preceding chapter. All those prophets of Baal were there. He mocked them. He got to the end of the day and he finally called on God and God sent down this fire from heaven. I mean, this is something no one can doubt. This is the hand of God. This is the power of God. It licked up all the water in the trench. It licked up the sacrifice and everything else, burnt the whole thing up. And then he went down there and, and the people rallied. Who is, you know, and the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they killed off all those prophets of Baal, 450. but no revival really happened. I want you to think about that for a minute because we think, whoo, this is revival. Ahab wasn't converted. Ahab wasn't converted by seeing that fire come down, was he? Tell me, was he? No, he wasn't. In fact, he was so unconverted, he went home and told Jezebel because that was his, that was like his nuclear missile. That was like what you do with the last resort because if you put that woman on somebody, and that's what he did. This was a, a wicked, I mean, Ahab was the no, most notoriously wicked king of Israel, but Jezebel was probably more wicked. And she sent a message to the prophet. She said, so do the gods to me and more also if I make not thy life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And what did he do? He took off. See, he thought that this was going to eventuate in this wholesale revival and the nation would be brought back to God. It didn't. And I'm telling you, folks, that's how we tend to be today as well. We think that that's what it, that's, if God would just call down all these plagues, well, did the coronavirus do much for us? Answer, no. I don't even think it woke the church up. In fact, I'm not so sure the church is not more asleep now than it was before the coronavirus. Don't get me going. I, I, I just think the response of the church by and large to this has been terrible. And we've got more people out here campaigning for political things and over some of these social issues that have gone on than the spiritual ills in our nation and some of the very quote-unquote evangelicals that are out there campaigning for all these political causes are not doing anything to bring men to repentance and to faith in Christ. They're not preaching sin. They're not, instead of calling our nation on the carpet for, I, I'm, look, I'm not for social inequity. I, I get that. But instead of calling our nation on the carpet for abortion and the killing of wholesale of babies, instead of our calling our nation on the carpet for LGBTQ+, whatever else they can add to the thing, and telling us that the judgment of God is coming down on us for all these things. They're out here talking about, well, I won't even say it. You know, it's what's in the news. I'm thinking to myself, 
you missed the boat, buddy. You're not on the same Bible that I've got. I think the church is in terrible condition, and the nation is in worse condition. So he's upset. He, he wanted to see, I mean, he had a heart for God. He's like Jonah, you know, he really wanted to see the, the nation come back to God, and he was upset about this thing. But the Lord provides the answer, and he says to all of this, Two things. We have to kind of hasten, I guess, with this a little bit. But he says two things. He says, number one, go forth. Look at verse 11 and 12. Get out of the cave. I got some things I want to show you. And he said, go forth. You're not going to see what I got to show you if you're in this cave. So go forth. What's he showing? First thing, the Lord passed by. There was a great and strong wind that rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Well, what's it say? The Lord was not in the wind, was he? Wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. What's it say about that? The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that what this nation needs today more than dramatic tsunamis, earthquakes, and what we would consider to be devastating and obvious signs of God's displeasure and approval is we need men to hear and women to hear the still, small voice of God. Because I'm telling you, Miracles, by and large, don't end up converting people. Jesus used them for signs, and, and there is a place for this. But by and large, these great outpourings, these floods, these earthquakes, these tsunamis, these types of things, they end up hardening men's hearts more than they end up penetrating men's hearts. And if you don't, let me give you an example of this in the Bible. Was Pharaoh ever converted? And who saw more devastating, obvious outpourings of the power of God's displeasure and anger because those plagues were not randomly chosen. They were judgments, many of them on the gods of Egypt. Who saw all that and it did nothing but contribute to the hardness of his heart? Did 911 bring us back to God? No. Did the coronavirus bring us back to God? No. But buddy, let me tell you something. You get the voice of God. You turn the voice of God loose and let that penetrate the heart of a man, a woman, a boy, a girl with the convicting power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You get by the power of God men to start feeling conviction of sin and the burden of the gospel and the need of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. That changes things. That's what brings revival. You don't revive dead people anyway, right? You revive church people. You revive God's people. You ever once get the church doing what the church ought to be doing and the rest will follow, I'll guarantee you. You know, I know it's guarantee, but I'm just saying. So God says, go forth. I want to show you something. You like the fire. We like the fire. Wouldn't that be great? Boy, wouldn't that be great if you could go out there and hold a street meeting and Rattle a few windows with your voice, and all of a sudden, boom, pow, big clap of thunder. And everybody's sitting there listening to you with a, whoa, wow. But God, 
I'm not saying God can't work that way. I'm not saying there are times when God doesn't work that way. I'm just saying that's not the normal way God works. We like ostentation. We like show. We like big displays. I mean, it's like Naaman. This is the, this is the thinking of an unconverted person, not a converted person. Think about this. What happened with Naaman? The king said, go down there. I've gotten a letter from the king of Egypt, uh, from Israel. You get down there, he's got a prophet. He'll heal you of your leprosy. Well, he drove up there to the prophet's house. Big show. He's, he's big stuff. You know, he's Naaman, the, 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 the captain of the Syrian host. And he shows up there with his chariot and all of his bodyguards and everything else. And Elijah just tells his servant, go out and tell him to go wash in the river seven times and he'll be healed. He was offended. He thought the prophet would come out and call down something and strike his hands and heal the leper. He was looking for some big ostentation, something showy, something that... And the prophet just said, not how it works. You have to humble yourself first. He says, well, I get out of there washing this old miserable, muddy, murky river in Egypt. I've got two in Syria that are crystal clear. Why would I do that? And who is it that gets used? A servant. Servant says to him, you know, I don't mean to speak out of turn, sir. But if the prophet had asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Why not this? And God was in this, and he thought about it, and he went and did it, and he came up out of that water clean. You know, God's way of salvation doesn't seem like it makes much sense to the unsaved mind. We think somehow it's going to be something else, something big, something showy, and God says, no, it's the cross. It's the Savior. That's the only way. Boy, when you go there, you come up clean. I'm telling you. So he says, go forth. The next thing he says is, go return. Look at verse 15. And the Lord said unto him, go return. You're not in the right place. I finally got you. I think where you maybe you see that. You're not in the right place. And you're not right when you say you're all alone. Because if you go back up there, number one, I got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And you didn't know they were there. And your pity party was not really appropriate. You weren't all alone. You're not all alone. But not only that, I don't have to use just you. Did you ever figure that out? Or did you think that you were my only prophet? Somehow we get the big head sometimes and thinks, you know what? It all starts and ends with us. No, it doesn't. We're lucky to be, excuse the word luck. We're blessed to be used of God. If God chooses to give us a little opportunity to serve, he can find somebody else if we aren't willing to do that. He says, you go back up there and you anoint Hazael to be king of Syria. You go back up there and you anoint Jehu to be king of Israel. And you go back up and cast your mantle on Elijah as your successor. And look what he says. If you've probably missed this before, but I hope in the context now you see it. He says at verse 17, It shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. Well, who ultimately was the one who, who brought the judgment on the house of Ahab? It was Jehu. Remember that? It wasn't Elijah. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall, I probably never thought about this before, but shall Elisha slay. The judgment was coming. Everything he preached, God was going to bring that judgment on those people. But Elijah wasn't the only hand of servant of God, the only vessel of God that God intended to use. The job's going to get done. Your preaching's true. God's going to keep his word. 
But how he does it, if he wants to do it all through you, fine. But if he wants to raise up Hazael, if he wants, that's a pagan man. If he wants to raise up Jehu, if he wants to call Elisha, that's his business. It's not my place. It's not your place to get upset with God and tell him how to run the affairs of heaven. Elisha was in the wrong place, folks. And you and I have found ourselves in the wrong place at times too because the real place of fulfillment and joy and peace is never away from God. It's in the center of God's will. Just ask Jonah. He thought that he would get on a boat because he didn't like going to Nineveh, didn't like the sound of that job, and go the other way to Tarshish and thought he'd be okay. Man alive. You're, in, you're looking for problems. You step outside of God's will, you're looking for big problems. The sea raged and was tempestuous. Give me anything but that. That's the scariest thing. About like being on an airplane and all that turbulence. You know, it's just like, oh, I'm in trouble now. Folks, I'm just saying, sadly, we often seek shelter from sources other than God. But God is the one. God's the one who's committed himself to meet our physical needs, and God's the one who's committed himself to meet our spiritual needs. And the story of Elijah and the, Elijah and the juniper shows that God can provide it even in the desert. And I'll tell you something, the juniper flourishes there. Sometimes the most meaningful displays of God's intervention and provision in our lives are in the barren places when we come to an end of ourselves. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we had this morning to consider the story of the prophet, how we can all relate to it, how we can all relate to the practical subject of shelter. Help us to realize, as we're going to sing in a few moments, the Lord's our rock, in him we hide, a shelter in the time of storm. You're the one that we need to come to. You're the one that we need to ask from. You're the one that we need to acknowledge. And Lord, I don't know the needs of folk here today. But Lord, shelter is something everyone needs. We know that. We're built that way. So wherever we are today, whatever we need, would you come and just speak to our hearts, minister to our hearts, bless us, encourage us, help us. And if there's anybody here today that's not saved, doesn't know Christ as Savior, oh Lord, let the word of God, the seed of the word of God, be planted in that heart. May they, a conviction process start that would ultimately bring them to inquire further if they need questions answered and to know how they can know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, to get this matter fixed truly, once and for all. Religion can't do it, but you can. And I pray you'll bless now in Jesus' name. Amen.